Hello and welcome to episode 230 of the Wallace Waveland podcast. I'm your host, Weishan, and as usual, I've got Tony with me here today. Hey T, how's it going? It's going okay. It's going okay. I'm, you know, just, I'm a little bit bummed out, actually. Uh, uh, I don't know if you heard over uh, the basically the weekend, uh, DMX uh, passed away uh, from a drug overdose. I don't know who, if you even know who that is. I do, I do. I have heard some of his songs before. I'm not that young. So <laughs> I thought you were going to say Prince. I thought you were going to talk about Prince Philip, though. I, I, truly, <laughs> I, there, I could not care less about the royal family. Because basically, the reason why I've met DMX a couple times, and he was, dude was troubled. Um, lots of run-ins with the law. Um, always battling, you know, his whole life he was battling drug addiction. Um, but it's impressive. It's impressive what he did. Um, and his first three albums were just absolutely bonkers good, like to put out uh, Flesh My Flesh. Um, and then... Uh, arguably one of the great albums of all time uh it's dark and hell is hot like all in the same year it's like jesus that was incredible but anyway uh he is from yonkers and i moved from connecticut to carmel new york uh which is about 30 minutes north of yonkers and i worked in white plains for the journal news there and he was just a dude that you would see like you'd go into a restaurant or bar sometimes he'd just be there you go into a bar with Ran into him at a Barnes and Nobles. He was there with his daughter or niece or something. I, I can't remember who it was. But it was just like, it was just weird. To, he was just a guy, he's super famous, but just lived his life. And no, and I think everybody was just so scared of him. No one would really <laughs> ever go up to him or anything like that. So, did you? Uh, at a bar. Yeah, one time uh, I went up to him. Uh, me and my buddy, uh, Ben Ankler, uh, went up to him. And uh, yeah, he was, he was fine. Yeah. Um, and we what just did ran you away. Say to him? Where it's like, hey, we're big fans. Just sorry, we we, we sure it gets all the time. Just want to say, big fans. We're like, no, thank you. Yeah. You know, and so it's not. Trust me, we weren't about to carry on a conversation. Wasn't about to get into it. Dude was just drinking by himself at a bar, and so it was just like, nope, all good. Okay. Um, but yeah, no, he's just like somebody you saw around. So uh, I was like, ah, oh, man, that's a bummer. That's a that's a shame. And he's getting some. It seemed like there were some good things going on with his life, but so that was a bummer. The the royal family stuff. I. If you would have told me that he, Prince Char, no, Prince Philip, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. If you would have said to me he was dead already, I'd have been like, oh, yeah, that make, yeah, that dude's ancient, right? And I'm yeah, amazed that Queen Elizabeth turning, is still rocking and rolling. He's he's supposed to turn 100 sometime in June. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, this is clearly a natural good lead-in for the guests that we have on today and the conversation that we're going to be talking about today which will be about <laughs> frtb uh market risk uh, so we do have a guest today thankfully you don't have to listen to us talk about the royal family or rappers um <laughs> Eugene Stern and Brad Foster, both from Bloomberg, uh, joined, uh, had a good discussion about um, the the FRTB fundamental uh, review of the trading book. There you go. Thank you. Um, and the initial margin deadlines are come up. And then but I think for me, the most interesting piece of the conversation was about uh, modularization and kind of, you know, you think of Bloomberg, you think of kind of these big you know monolithic platform right this kind of huge company that you know doesn't really connect in but it was just interesting about how 
they're also like many other uh, players in the trading technology space are looking to kind of break down their platforms to fit the needs of the various different clients that they have. So I think that was uh, probably the, the, the most interesting, but certainly uh, there's stuff on FRTB. It's uh, really good too. So um, yeah, that's who we got. Okay. Till next week. Catch you later. All right, and now I am joined by Eugene Stern, the head of market risk product at Bloomberg, and Brad Foster, the head of enterprise data content. Uh, Eugene and Brad, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us both, yeah. So, you know, we thought it'd be a good idea to have, uh, it's it's a good time right now. There are, there are some major deadlines that are going to be hitting the market uh, fairly soon, and uh, your group had put out a, a bit of a survey, I guess you had an event where you had uh, spoken and gotten some feedback from a lot of traders, risk managers, stuff like that about some of the concerns they had. Let's start off with uh, FRTB, right? Um, so looking at that, uh, the fundamental review of the trading book. So you'd, uh, I guess let's start off with this. Why is this still such a significant, as you as was put in uh, the the report, significant data and risk modeling challenge? I guess around this, what are some of the concerns that that firms are still um, worrying about as implement as the implementation deadline, uh, even though it was delayed a year to January 2023, uh, the first reporting deadlines are approaching in Q3 21 uh, 2021. Um, Eugene, I guess I'll start off with you, and then Brad, you can jump in after that and kind of just bounce around. Sure. Uh, so yeah, so the the first uh, uh, set of deadlines is coming in in Europe. Uh, I mean, I think it's it's still a concern because there are a lot of challenges. So yeah, and as banks get to you know, implementing more and more of this, they end up peeling back with more and more layers of the onion and encountering uh, additional challenges. Right. So. Uh, I mean, we've uh, we've been working with banks, you know, both through with their data and with their uh, uh, analytics uh, issues. So it's uh, I mean, on uh, I mean, Brad can talk a bit on the data side, on the uh, on the analytics side, just the the modeling sort of the the consistency across asset classes has been a challenge for many banks. Um, you know, for for the you know, banks that have more complex exposures, you have sort of very um, prescribed treatment of how those those are supposed to be modeled for risk. So yeah, so so, so that's an issue, right? So, so, so calculating all the analytics the way the bottle committee says that you're supposed to, and then you know, then then there's sort of specific pockets. So um, in in Europe, one uh, one big challenge that that uh, we've you know, had a lot of discussion about in the last year is treatment of funds because uh, there's uh, uh, if you don't have information on the fund constituents and incorporate that, you pay a very big. Uh, um, uh, a big uh, penalty from a capital perspective, sure. um, and uh, I mean, be, be, you know, beyond that, it's just it's just getting the infrastructure in place to run it and sort of, and to have it be you know, operationally effective, right? So, um, I mean, a, a lot of banks are you know, potentially sort of able to get some kind of process in place, but then there's still data to massage. There might be analytics models to massage in some place, and they have trouble automating it. So it becomes, and if you don't automate it, then it becomes kind of a 
static report that you run overnight, but then you you have trouble using that um, interactively to make decisions during the day to do sort of pre-trade type analysis to sort of to do more kind of you know, yeah. capital sort of modeling and optimization. So that's the that's a challenge for banks too to actually just kind of have to to, to embed them their risk workflow in the right way. Let me, you know, so Brad, let me ask you this, you know, so of about 188 responses, about half uh, said that they were, that they, that they felt that they were um, at least on, you know, kind of on target, but that their implementation has slowed because of COVID related concerns. So that's obviously thrown uh, a wrench in the system here, but uh, 25% anticipated challenges implementing analytical systems and risk sensitivity calculations. 22% anticipated challenges in data bucketing and the treatment of funds. And uh, Brad, uh, you had said this, uh, FRTB presents all of the major data challenges banks face in a nutshell, uh, from clearing the data to categorizing it and ultimately making it applicable for risk management and regulatory compliance. Uh, the upcoming implementation of this major new rule should be a reminder for banks to evaluate their overall data strategy and make sure their data aligns across the front, middle, and back office from the trading desk to the compliance department. I guess my question is this, Brad, is this is something that, you know, the, Back in 2008, you know, the lessons of 2008, we've been talking about the need to do this regardless of for FRTB or whether it was Dodd Frank or Mr. Two concerns. Why is this still such a challenge? Why is this still such a hurdle um, for for large institutions to get their head around around the data con uh, challenges of this? Well, I think um, a few things. Firstly, at its core, FRTB is obviously a market risk cap or regulation. But when you dig deeper into it, you realize pretty quickly that it's not just about um, calculating what is your market risk capital. There's a vast amount of data that has to go into essentially getting there. Um, and I think that as much as we talk about this as a fundamental review of the trading book, I also think it's a really opportune time for banks to revisit their data management strategy. And so when you look at what FRTB asks for um, or, or, or uh, requests of the banks is there needs to be some level of consistency alignment between the front, middle and back office. And to me, that represents a common sense approach to managing your data. Um, if you think about, you know, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's your basic terms and conditions data, your classifications data, pricing data, any of these data sets, there's really no reason why you should have completely inconsistent data sitting in your front office versus say, sitting in your middle and back office. I mean, it creates all the obvious challenges for banks like breaks and inconsistency. So I do think that for many banks, you know, um, this, as I said, as much as this is a market risk capital regulation that people are trying to comply with, I do think it's an opportunity for them to really align their data management strategy because a lot of the data that you need for FRTB is the same data you're using across the rest of your workflow. It's data that you need irrespective of FRTB and, and calculating your market risk capital. So why not align your data? Why not make sure that if it's, as an example, if it's pricing data, you're using the same pricing data in your front office as you are in your back and middle office. So when you look at risk and PNL, when you look at computing market risk capital, you have that level of provenance, you have that level of consistency and alignment between your different uh, parts of the organization. And you can imagine, Tony, when you look at 
what that means for, you know, whether you're a large tier one bank or you're a smaller regional bank, you can imagine years and years of, uh, you know, of, 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 of data, of looking at data in a certain way, having to be revisited in of itself represents many challenges for banks. And so I think one of the things we provide um, to our customers is obviously the ability to look at this, um, you know, um, across the different data sets, the interconnectivity between data. Um, we, we, we refer to it as our one data strategy. It really does offer firms the opportunity to create that consistency alignment um, across content and data. Well, okay, so let's, Let's just dig in then a little bit around, and we'll use um, uh, pricing data as the example, as you brought up. Consistency and alignment. Now, obviously, Bloomberg has a solution for this, right? But let's let's take a step back from kind of that kind of sales-like idea of, you know, here's the product. Tell me a little bit about where do firms need to start putting their building box in place today? What where do they, in order to have that uh, consistency and that alignment in their data management strategy, what are those first pieces that they really need to absolutely have to address right now today? And maybe what's kind of changed from a technological perspective that maybe makes that um, a little bit more viable today than five years ago, 10 years ago? Yeah, I think a few things. One is obviously, um, you have cloud today. Cloud obviously facilitates storage. It can it facilitates compute. It facilitates the ability to not only store but, as I say, um, run multiple iterations and analytics in the cloud. You know, it gives banks a lot more flexibility in terms of running that that coordinated data strategy. I think when you look at um, and you contrast, say, where we are today versus say 2008-9, that really wasn't. A strategy that banks went down or a path that banks went down. So I think that the levers that bank ha banks have to pull on today versus say even five, six, seven years ago um, are completely different, right? And I think that there's a lot out there that helps to facilitate this alignment and the, that, that ability to create consistency when it comes to your data. Um, you know, I think when it comes to when it comes to to risk and risk management, when it comes to risk and PL. It obviously goes, I mean, given we, you know, the example we're using is, 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 is pricing data, I think it goes without saying that when you generate, whether it's um, risk sensitivities, when you generate, whether it's a CSO one or a PVO one, or whether you, it's, a, it's, it's a, you know, it's a Greek in the, in the context of options, ultimately the pricing data that feeds those analytics, that feeds those pricing engines, there's no reason why that pricing or those analytics and um, tools should be different between the front um, and the back office. Um, I think when you look at even pre-FRTB, when you look at um, the reconciliation processes that banks had to run when they were trying to tie back simple things like running a value at risk, uh, value at risk report, when it came to back testing their value at risk, um, generating PL, I think by creating this consistency, by creating this alignment, um, by using cloud to essentially facilitate the type of storage you need, the type of analytics that you run, the compute that you need, the elasticity around compute that that, that provides. I think banks are definitely in a much better position today to essentially make this happen than, than say, you know, as I say, five, six, seven years ago. Okay. Eugene, give it to me then from the kind of the modeling perspective. Obviously, the data, you got to have that consistency. What's changed then from uh, a modeling and market risk perspective that you've seen that that maybe 
firms because of technological change, because of advancements um, in just uh, in modeling techniques, what's kind of change that maybe makes it a time for firms to better shore up their strategy and using FRTB as the excuse to make that investment? Well, so uh, so it's interesting, right? So the one of the big changes in the regulatory climate is is uh, sort of you know, with, with FRTB, you you, you see uh, a real change in the balance between different kinds of reg cap calculations. So uh, back in the Basel 2.5 framework, you had the standardized approach, which wasn't risk sensitive at all and was very punitive from a capital perspective, and so very few, um, you know, You'd only see the sort of much much smaller banks using it. Most most of those, you know, most regional and and certainly the bigger banks were using internal models. So you'd have VAR and stressed VAR calculations, and those risk measures would be used for internal risk management as well. Um, so what you have now f- for under FRTB, so kind of that balance has changed a little bit. So. Um, the internal models approach has gotten very challenging to implement because there are a lot of very specific requirements around it. So we don't see many banks other than the very largest ones going down that route right now. So um, it, it seems like the regionals and even some of the um, um, some of the larger banks will be on standardized approach from a right cap perspective. So starting uh, at least starting out. Um, so those are much more. The, you know, while the raw analytics driving that are sort of our basic risk analytics, or you still have your, your kind of basic instrument level sensitivity, so you have to model your instruments carefully. And the specific measures are very regulatorily focused, mm-hmm. right? Whereas at, the, whereas at the same time, you still have those banks who are using VAR type models for their internal risk management, right? So what's so one thing that's changed is that you know instead of having a common metric that you're using for reg cap and internal risk management, now you have potentially a divergent. You still have the underlying underlying at all this, um, you know, you, you want to have a common data, um, a common analytics infrastructure under the hood, is that's the, that's you, know, you want it all to be consistent and to have a common flow, as I think Brad was touching on, but you know, then you're, you're calculating different risk measures uh, on top of that. Right. So now in that new world, you know, you might be reporting essay metrics for FRTB. Your VAR models aren't going away for internal risk management. So what that is, it's both a challenge and an opportunity for banks. Right. So the challenge is you don't want to have the underlying sort of infrastructures calculating, excuse me, calculating those risk measures to drift apart. Right, because then you start you start having you know, two separate processes, kind of you know, different analytics, you have possibly different teams sort of around that it's hard to interpret the numbers and make decisions. I mean, that's like the you know the, the, the headaches around that will multiply, right? So what's really important to do, you know, you know, is to sort of manage the divergence to have it just be on the level of the of the measures, but have kind of you know, have a common set of data, have a common set of analytics, and have a common set of of 
you know, a, a common platform and operations sort of to, to generate all of those. And then all the numbers make sense. You can, you, know, you can reconcile, you can make decisions based on them. You can take the ones meant for the regulators and send them that way. You can take the ones meant for internal risk management and send them this way. And you know, it's, all, it, it's all consistent and flows much better operationally, right? So I think the, the banks who, you know, who, who view FRTD kind of in that strategic way, right? So they, so they won't just focus on FRTD, but they'll kind of focus on their overall risk infrastructure are going to be in a much better place. And, you know, frankly, at Bloomberg, we think about it that way today, right? So when, you know, for, for us kind of building, you know, building it, helping our clients with FRTB, building out FRTB solutions is really upgrading our whole risk platform. And, you know, for, for, for the banks that, that, that think uh, similarly sort of that, think in that kind of strategic way, I think they're going to, they're, they're going to gain a lot of benefit from it. And, you know, I mean, frankly, you know, given this initiative, given the, you know, the importance of it and frankly the budget that banks have around it it's a great opportunity to, to, to upgrade that whole infrastructure i think something that might be interesting to hit on here is all right so you talk about this idea of a common set of data analytics um creating consistency and alignment you know the, the, there's a commonality between both of what you what you both are saying internally at bloomberg how have how has the strategy changed over the years? Okay, so for example, 12 years ago when I started here, we had different publications. We had uh, inside market data, inside reference data. We had a sell-side technology publication, a buy-side technology publication. We morphed all those things together because those inter they, they, they weren't so disparate anymore. Everything kind of comes together, the product side, the technology side, and the data side. And there, it just feels like it's becoming more and more due to cloud, I would say, but I'm sure there's many reasons around it. So from a strategy perspective, you know, Eugene, you're kind of more on the product side, uh, Brad, as a data manager, you guys are working on two ends, but feeding in together. What did you guys have to change internally to kind of help align your offering with where banks are also trying to align their tech and data teams together? I'll throw it out there. Whoever wants to take that first. Well, I can start. I mean, the the most obvious thing, and I hope I won't take offense at this, is like, I mean, we're we're just talking a lot more, right? I mean, yeah. we're we're on here, you know, the the you know, the two of us from the data side and from the analytics side together, but you know, but we're really kind of part of the same broad initiative at Bloomberg, right? So I think you know, back you know back uh, you know, t- you know maybe eight uh, eight ten years ago, you know, we uh, we had you know. You know, we were building out our data offerings. We were, you know, we were you know, building out our analytics offerings, and you know, we, I mean, we were coordinating, right? But I think, kind of, you know, in you know, in the way, you know, in the way that we talk to you know, banks right now, right? So mm-hmm. banks are looking at it as a sort of joint data and analytics conversation, kind of as you said. Right. So, and, and then, and then for us, you know, then, then it's sort of, it's similarly kind of a, a, a joint data and analytics conversation. It's a joint strategy. I mean, I think in, you know, in, in, in terms of sort of, of overall, um, kind of, you know, how, you know, how, you know, how we work, how we build it. Right. So, I mean, we, I mean, you know, Bloomberg was always a platform, right? So it wasn't, it's not like we sort of needed sort of big sort of changes under the hood to really make it sort of, um, 
you know, to, to position ourselves to, to really help our clients, you know, but, you know, but just you know, in, you know, in terms of the, you know, in terms of the kind of the you know, way that we were kind of the, the, the way that we sort of position the offering as a, you know, as a you know, joint platform and a joint solution, I think, you know, his, his, uh, you know, I mean, I think you know, how, the way that our clients think about it is sort of like, you know, and, and want to talk about it is how we've evolved to talking about it. And, yeah, yeah. and, and that, that's apparently well. Brad, for you? Yeah, I mean, I think I would add just a little bit. I think Eugene's touched on most of the most of the points, but I think we organize ourselves around product and data, um, but that doesn't mean that's how we go out and, and pitch that to clients. We know that this is as much a, an analytics as well as a data problem or challenge for our clients. Um, I think you know, not being joined at the hip, not being completely seamless in terms of how we present this to customers, you know, is, is really not an option for us because no matter who we talk to, whether it's it's one tier one bank versus another tier, tier one bank, every bank is, confr is, is confronted with different challenges. And so really remaining nimble, remaining agile, being able to plug into where our clients' challenges are. Sometimes it's more of a data-centric challenge. Sometimes it's more analytics-driven. Um, I think really means we have to be completely coordinated around this. So the fact that we organize ourselves around product and data is, is, you know, is just from an execution perspective. But I think when it comes to actually presenting solutions to customers, we're completely joined up in terms of our solution. Well, then, okay, so let's look at it then from FRTB. This has been something that's been years in the work and we're kind of getting toward, I don't know if a finish line or maybe a start line really. Um, but what were some lessons then learned along the way? Where where did you guys have to kind of change and how do you use that lesson learned that maybe other data professionals that are listening in either at the end users or at, in the vendor community that they can learn from that yourselves where where were some of the missteps maybe taken that you had to adjust your strategy to better help clients out along the way well i think listen certainly on the data side i mean we've learned a lot about what our clients you know where our clients are in terms of this this journey to be compliant when it comes to FRTB, and I, and it and it and it is exactly that. It is a journey, and so, you know, I think in some instances, I think we made certain assumptions around what types of data would be more relevant to solving this problem. Whereas what we learned over time is that really this is as as much a foundational data challenge as it is a more sort of complex data challenge. And I'll explain to you what I mean by that. So. You know, I mean, if you think about IMA and RFET and risk factor modelability, your assumption would be that pricing data is the most important thing. Right? And being able to um, show observability is the most important thing, right? But when you look at actually the core of what FRTB is going after, there's a lot of that needs to happen in terms of some of the foundational aspects around data. Simple, as I said earlier, terms and conditions data, classifications data, uh, risk bucketing data. Um, that you simply have to get right. And so I think, you know, what we've learned over time is really this is, you know, for, for most banks, they're not approaching this problem in isolation of the broader data challenge, right? Sure. They're looking at it very much in conjunction with their broader, broader data challenge. And so, you know, we've, you know, when we look at this from a data perspective and the solutions we create, it's very, you know, it's very modular. It's very easy for customers to pick and choose what parts of our data offering they, they can use in order to, to drive towards compliance um you know so i think 
you know, certainly from a data perspective, we've learned over time that actually the breadth and depth, the fact that clients need a lot of history, the client, you know, time series data, um, you can really make no assumptions in terms of what the major challenges are that any client faces when you're going to talk to them, because they really can vary quite remarkably between between different banks, even you know, one US tier one, you know, tier one bank versus another, a European tier, you know, tier one bank versus another. They, you know, the, the the challenges around implementation and data um, can 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 vary quite dramatically. Okay. And Eugene, for you, can you expand on that? Like, what were some of the lessons that you learned from the analytical side? Yeah. So, so just expanding on a couple of, of Brad's points. Like, so I mean, I, I I think one thing that he sort of highlighted was was the important was the importance of modularity and sort of flexibility. And I think that's just, that that's the real key here, right? Because it you know, it really is the case that you know that different banks would end up facing different challenges, you know, both because of what they trade and how they're organized and what their processes are and what legacy systems might be, right? So something that's a slam dunk for one bank, you know, could, you know, could, you know, could for whatever reason be a very big challenge for another, right? So, mm-hmm. And you, know, you, you don't really know until you, you, know, you, you go in and talk with them and kind of really get inside their workflow. So I think that kind of so a couple lessons learned from that, right? So one is sort of is the importance of kind of really getting in there and sort of and understanding the you know, how, what the workflow is and what the gaps are and kind of you know, and how you can help. And then kind of from you know, from from the supply side, just sort of ha- having the modular infrastructure, kind of the architecture, both from the data and from the analytics perspective, to be able to fill those gaps, right? So. Right. So, so I was talking about about ways that um, that FRTB has driven us to sort of to upgrade our platforms, right? So from from a risk perspective, so the modularity is is a key part here, right? So you know, we'll you know, we'll you know, help a you know a mid-sized regional bank or a smaller bank with an end-to-end solution. They can outsource the whole capital calculation to us if they want to, but at the same time, you might have a you know, larger bank that's sort of that's challenged with with a couple different aspects, maybe sort of at different parts of the workflow. Maybe there's a you know, there's a challenge with fund constituent information over here, and then you know maybe uh, um, you know maybe you know, risk buckets or uh, um, or you know kind of modeling of callable bonds over there. And we we actually have, you know we so, so you know, we have the capacity to help a bank. Because we're modular, so we're going to, to to help a bank with the particular parts of the workflow that they're uh, struggling with. Is that so? That would actually be you know. It's funny. I, I think that this idea of modularity is something that's really becoming talked about more, and the idea around microservices really is you know. I speak, recently spoke with uh, the folks at uh, Line Data, and that's like they're they're really trying to break down their different services, and they don't almost view their OEM. OEMS anymore as being like their OEMS, whatever. So they have this thing, but really it's just, it's a grouping of services and then you kind of fit what's right for them. I would think almost like Bloomberg, you know, just a 10,000 pound gorilla in the room, right? You guys, the way that people would speak to me about, I don't know if you would look at it this way, I think it's a proper characterization, but back in the day, it would be this monolithic and and all support trading system, which of course it still is. I'm sure you'd you'd recognize it as that. But it sounds like now the importance is kind of being able to break down the different components to fit the the various needs of the various firms because the complexity of trading strategies 
is certainly evolving, especially for the buy side. Am I characterizing that in the correct way? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly from a, a uh, again, from a data perspective, I think when we look at the use cases for our data, it is so wide and varied in terms of what clients choose to take and use our data for. You have the more traditional use cases, which are sort of workflow related, you know, books and records, PL, et cetera. Then you go all the way to the other end of the continuum, if you like, to the more complex end of the, the, the spectrum, which is your quant, your quantum mental, your, you know, um, you know, that that obviously, you know, uh, you know, rely on vast amounts of not just ongoing data, but historical data in order to test whatever hypothesis there are testing. So I think when you look at the breadth and, uh, of the use cases that we satisfy today, I think, you know, when you combine that with the fact that we deal with extremely large clients, um, as well as really small, you know, um, buy side hedge funds, um, we have to be somewhat modular in terms of how we approach this. Um, I think to offer a, or to expect that you, you're you going to fully displace every incumbent out there, um, you know, um, you know, in a, you know, in a single um, conversation is, is, you know, is highly unlikely. I think in most instances where we see and where we get a lot of traction is where we, you know, I mean, if we look at our pricing data, our evaluated pricing product as an example, the use case for our pricing product has evolved significantly, even in the last sort of couple, you know, few years since we bought the um, the Barclays indices. Our BVAL product pr uh, prices all the the underlying constituents across those indices, and so whereas previously BVAL was used much more as a workflow solution for valuation, um, you know, RPV processes. Now it's actually there's a large demand for our data in the front office, you know, for you know, for list trading, portfolio trading, ETF trading, um, you know, um, so yeah, we that evolution is happening as we speak. And I think for us, we have to be completely nimble in terms of satisfying those use cases, um, you know, and, 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 and part of satisfying those use cases is to make sure that we, you know, that we you know, we're able to plug the data gaps that our clients have. Okay. And are you doing anything to add to that? Or? No, I, mean, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, uh... Yep. I mean, I think particularly since it's still sort of early days for FRTB, right? So, you know, we, we're, we're seeing obviously kind of the, the reporting dates kind of going into effect in Europe, but, you know, still globally, there are still, you know, plenty of national regulators that have to weigh in. They're, they're, uh, um, you know, there are likely going to be local modifications to sort of to the Boswell rules. We're already seeing that to, to some extent already. So we have to keep being nimble. Um, you know, not you know, not just with respect to bank needs and specific and, and workflows, but also to to the way that the rules are going to evolve. And I, mean, I think one of the you know, one of the interesting questions is going to be how how, how much specialization there's going to be in uh, in how the uh, the rules get implemented. So, you know, I I don't feel like a you know, ten thousand pound gorilla quiet yet. <laughs> fair enough fair enough um let's just hit on one other topic uh before i let you guys go i appreciate the time obviously today uh one other big deadline uh, uh facing firms right now is the libor transition um it'll be basically by the end of the year um it'll be gone but uh i guess it'll still be publishing until june 2023 but you're not allowed to use it this is a subject that i didn't think had much of a data component to it, much of a, you know, I saw it, it's just silly me. I just thought it was, I don't know, something that really didn't involve our readers that much. But then you look at, 
IHS Market. Numerics have been putting out some products. Obviously, uh, Bloomberg has um, the Bloomberg Short-Term Bank Yield Index. Um, in addition, you know, as this transition competing, I guess, against uh, the secured uh, overnight financing rates, SOFR. So many acronyms in this space. You gotta love it. Um, are there comparables to FRTB and the work that's being done there uh, that would uh, be used for this LIBOR transition? Or is this wholly unique and different um, from a uh, data uh, collection, cleansing, and management perspective? I'm sure if you if you thought hard enough, you could probably find parallels between what I think clients are having to grapple with vis-a-vis Arbor transition and and FRTB. I mean, obviously, like most risk and reg topics, these things are extremely interconnected. Um, I think when it comes to Arbor, I mean, or the transition away from you know from the interbank offer rates, you can imagine how much of an impact this is having. I mean, if you think about the trillions of dollars of financial products that are impacted. And it's not just cash instruments, this affects derivatives. You can pretty quickly see how this can have a, how this is going to have a pretty dramatic impact on, on you know, on players in the market, whether you're on the sell side, buy side, pension funds, insurance companies, et cetera. I think certainly from the enterprise data perspective and from a content perspective, we acknowledge that this is in part like FRTB, this is a data challenge for firms. Um, and, you know, I mean, the whole concept of a transition away from one rate to another risk-free rate is not new. It's been around for a long time, but I don't think it had ever really been tested the way it's been tested today. And so this transition to whether it's so or any of the other risk-free rates is now actually being tested. And so I think one thing that is really important for clients to understand is, you know, what is the fallback language? You know, with embedded in all these contracts, whether a cash instrument or derivative, what is the fallback language? You know, how strong is that fallback language? How clear is that fallback language? And so I think for each of these cash instruments and financial products, clients need to understand what that fallback language is. And so we've obviously spent a lot of time scrubbing prospectuses, scrubbing documents, and we actually now are in a position to provide our customers with that eyeball fallback language. So that's an example of how this is affecting data. But I think it even goes beyond that. I mean, if you think about your basic fixed income reference data, um, you know, I mean, you know, obviously, when you move to a you know to a new rate that affects your underlying terms and conditions data, your basic reference data, and so being able to expose that to customers is just as important. Um, if you think about corporate actions data, I mean, corporate actions um, is extremely valuable when you think about this whole transition away from LIBOR. You need to be able to track any announced changes. So. You know, as an example, when an issuer wants to change the the underlying, or, or when a when when an issuer is, is needs to transition away from LIBOR to another rate, they have to do a consent solicitation to the holders. That is a corporate action. So having that corporate actions data is obviously important. Um, and then you have the rates themselves. And so when you look at, um, you know, Bissell, which is our index business, they obviously, you know, in partnership with ISDA, they calculate the uh, fallback rates. That is data in of itself. And so whether it's the fallback language, whether it's your basic underlying terms and conditions data, whether it's the corporate action that changes that rate to a new risk-free rate, whether it's the actual rates themselves, there's a large component of, of um, you know, of data to this. And I think where this starts to sort of 
uh, transition into uh, a challenge when it comes to FRTB is, you know, in order to to you know to have you know to to have that observability you need for IMA, you need to have history, right? You need to have you know, um, you need to be able to observe that over time. And so obviously this transition away from LIBOR to another risk-free rate obviously presents a challenge. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that clearly just by virtue of the trillions of dollars of notional outstanding, um, by virtue of the fact that this affects pretty much every part of the workflow, uh, articulated a few examples in terms of the type of data sets that this could impact or will impact how we have adjusted to that. But yeah, I do think this presents a major challenge for, you know, for, for, for not just, you know, um, you know, asset owners, but banks, issuers, corporates. Um, it, it really, um, you know, is, is, is pretty far reaching. Okay. And Eugene, for the clients you're speaking with, best practices, you know, what, 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 what are you recommending there? Well, I mean, just just uh, I mean, on uh, I mean, on top of what you know, Brad talked about, I mean, I think you know, so you you, I mean, you look downstream a little bit, right? Kind of from all of those data issues, then so you you get it into the actual analytics, right? And kind of you know, and, and the you know, you know, having to model the conventions around the rates and you know, kind of how you know, how that's going to affect your pricing, right? I mean, you, your uh, your analytics, right? I mean, you, like that. You know, that requires you know as much attention you know, as the data piece and you know probably as much attention or even more so as anything as, as what you're doing for uh, for frtb right so i mean i i think in uh, you know, in terms of scope and in terms of the sort of the, the level of detail it's really required to do it right i think that's that that's kind of where where i see the uh, the frtb and uh, and uh uh, LIBOR transition analogies, and yeah, I mean, I think you know, while you know, while they tend to be pretty different work streams for for you know most banks that we talk to, I mean, I I, I, I think the you know the the complexity and sorry, you know, and you know, and you know, digging through through these details and really kind of being able to you know, sort of having you know you know having the automation kind of in your workflows and the flexibility to incorporate those you know, those sort of, my new tweaks is uh, yeah is, is, is what's really needed in, uh, you know, in both work streams. Okay, well, gentlemen, I appreciate the time. Uh, as always, uh, thanks uh, for coming on and sharing your insights with our audience. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. <laughs>